Al Jazeera podcast. The Northern Hemisphere is witnessing unprecedented heat, floods and fires. The effects of climate change are now happening quicker than scientists had predicted. So what are the dangers of these erratic weather patterns and how do we keep safe? I'm Nastasia Tay and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast where we dissect, analyze and help define major global stories. Well, let's now bring in our guests. In Paris, we have Catherine Gamper. She leads the work on climate change adaptation at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. In Geneva, we have John Nairn. He's a senior extreme heat advisor at the World Meteorological Organization. And in Kent, in the United Kingdom, Dorothy Guerrero, head of policy and advocacy at Global Justice Now, a non-governmental organization which campaigns on issues of development in the Global South. A very, very warm welcome to you all. Thanks for joining us today on Inside Story. John, let me start with you. We knew this was coming, but did it perhaps happen a little bit quicker than we expected? Well, to be honest, the, the heat that we're seeing and the weather patterns that are supporting it are quite consistent with the advice that we've seen from the IPCC. Mm. Um, the problem that we're facing, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere, is the damage to the North Pole. The lack of ice is resulting in anomalous warming, and that's weakening the jet stream and resulting in patterns that lock in weather patterns during the summer in particular. And persistent patterns with clear open skies, anticyclones that are delivering, delivering these heat waves are one arm of the problem that we're seeing. The other arm are the persistent troughs, which are the next, sitting next to these heat waves, where we're seeing these persistent storms and uh, very heavy rainfall. And so these two sit side by side. We're seeing in this in this very energetic time of year, the the persistent extreme heat and the persistent uh, heavy rainfall events. Um, John, you were just saying there that this is not far off from IPCC predictions, the IPCC being the expert panel on climate change that's been looking into this for, for many years. Um, Catherine, if we knew this was coming, were we prepared? That is a very good question. Um, indeed, as, as John is saying, uh, the, what we're seeing today is very consistent with what the IPCC is telling us. And in fact, the IPCC is telling us if we are looking at a 4.5 degree warming going forward, 80% of the world population might be subject to extreme heat. So what we're seeing now may not be what we need to expect in the future. The future might actually become quite worse. And even though we expect this warming to happen, cities uh, uh, around the Northern Hemisphere are ill-prepared for it. So only now, after consecutive years of extreme of exposure to extreme heat waves, cities like Paris, London, New York, Los Angeles are getting into the gear of actually preparing for reducing um, warming. But it will take time. Some of the measures that uh, that we can take, for example, uh, uh, vegetizing cities, uh, changing the design of cities, are not measures that can help us decrease temperatures uh, from today to tomorrow. And in the meantime, we need to protect vulnerable people. But there are uh, there are measures. For example, in in Melbourne, there is the the, uh, their extreme heat plan foresees to replant the cities full of, of forests by 2050 to decrease, that, to decrease the urban heat island effect by four degrees by 2050. But again, as you can see, it may take time to actually uh, take action. 
In the US, the White House extreme heat plan is actually pouring billions into remaking houses. Poor housing will be upgraded to actually uh, install roofs that can help us bring temperatures down in, in cities. And we're upgrading energy and transport infrastructure so that we're confronted with less failure to increase their resilience going forward under extreme heat conditions. But all of this takes time and we're getting late into action. Well, it takes time and takes money. I, I want to get into some of the adaptation strategies in, in just a moment, but let me just bring Dorothy into the discussion here, because you, Dorothy, have been part of a movement that's been campaigning around these issues for decades, really. How are you feeling now as you watch climate predictions unfold in reality, knowing the, the choices that governments and corporations and individuals have made to get us to this point? Yeah, thank you, Nastasha, for having me in this program. Yes, indeed, governments, uh, corporations, and us non-government and not-for-profit organizations are all aware that climate change is happening and that it all its impacts are happening faster than earlier predicted. The Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change have, are, is now on its sixth report last year. Uh, all the multilateral meetings of governments, multilateral development banks and trade blocks, big summits like the World Economic Forum have put climate change in the top three concerns in all the meetings. But despite that, governments fail to do climate actions that are commensurate to the challenge. Uh, we, they are still following the same development model, growth-oriented model, that are um, have actually created this crisis. And then on the other hand, corporations, especially those that are extracting fossil fuels, so gas, oil, coal, have spent decades denying that climate change is happening. And in fact, they even have their in-house climate experts. But despite knowing that, and despite an almost accurate uh, for um, forecast and studies on climate change, um, they have denied it. And now that they have lost in the debate, the actions, the programs that they're putting on the table are not appropriate for the for the challenge we are facing. It's it's more business than usual so that they can continue profiting. We mm. have seen the profits of big fossil fuel corporations reaching historic levels last year, reach historic level at the first quarter of the year. So Shell even said that they are going back on their commitments made, made to their shareholders two years ago. So that means they're not ready to put appropriate actions. They wanted to continue profiting. For uh, Dorothy, many people... Sorry, you, you were just mentioning something there around climate denialism. I just want to clarify something for, for our viewers as well, and I want to direct this to John, because I believe we've already hit temperature rise above baseline levels from the 1900s of around 1.16 degrees Celsius. And we also know that this is the beginning of a number of years of El Nino too, which is contributing, and we know that that could push us over that 1.5 degree, very critical threshold. How much of what we're seeing right now, John, is due to climate change, and how much due to El Nino? That's a very good question. Um, we look we look at uh, the average global temperature to help us guide uh, policymakers, and we have seen the global temperature oscillate due to La Nina and El Nino influences. But what we've, what we've also seen is that baseline shifting. So now, um, normally, an El Nino results in a warmer globe, La Nina, uh, a cooler uh, period. But what we've seen in the last three years of La Nina are global average temperatures that are higher 
than the El Nino global average temperatures of the 80s. So the the El Nino, the ENSO cycle, El Nino, La Nina cycle is still there, but the background global increase in temperatures is dominating and it is continuing to shift uh, our climates to, a, to, to continually upset them. Um, I can only stress that uh, the Northern Hemisphere period of... Um, the, the summer period is is being dominated by the loss of sea ice across the North Pole. Hmm. So ENSO is a feature within that, uh, which will amplify the signal. But there are more than one signal that we should pay attention to, uh, more than one part of the globe that is exhibiting stress. Um, the, at the moment, the ocean temperature anomalies are a sea of red uh, in hmm. terms of it's very hard to see any part of the global oceans, 70% of the surface of the globe, where we are seeing anything other than warm anomalies. And, and as everyone keeps saying, we're clearly in uncharted territory here. Now, Dorothy, you mentioned there a lot of the propaganda that's been shared around the idea of, of global warming. A lot of people obviously have a lot of vested interests here. Catherine, I want to ask you, do you think that this extreme weather now is convincing people that climate change, people who perhaps didn't think that climate change was a real threat, is changing their minds? And do people genuinely think that the extreme weather that we're seeing is due to climate change and therefore actually adapting their behaviour to adjust to that? Well, that's, that's at least uh, what we hope. Uh, at least, I think, in the Northern Hemisphere, what the extreme events you're seeing today are undeniably causing an enormous amount of damage, an enormous amount of cascading effects uh, throughout our economies and in, in, in societies. And, and they need adapting to. This is a political mandate. This is a political question that is, is undeniable. Whether or not those in charge believe it is an anthropogenic climate change or not, I guess, is, is yet another debate. But what we see is, at least uh, in, in previous years, there was much debate that climate change adaptation is really a task that is left to uh, the global south, to small island states that are being inundated by sea level rise and so forth. But the extreme events we're seeing in the northern hemisphere uh, does now beg the question and does speed up government action also in European countries, in Northern American countries, and, and really across the OECD spectrum, really to gear up uh, and accelerate their adaptation measures. I'm taking a couple of examples. In Germany, the floods that um, were caused in the Ahr Valley that uh, caused a loss uh, to the federal government and a federal government layout of 30 billion euros really does uh, cause a change a change of mind of who is responsible for actually trying to prevent these damages. The wildfires yeah. that we've seen uh, recently, such as the campfires in 2018, as well as the bushfires, both of them caused $20 billion in, in, in damage. We are really unprecedented events. And if you were to put that money into preventing these events in the future, that would obviously uh, save you a lot of money. And we do see that uh, things are accelerating. 
climate change adaptation plans, comprehensive ones, are in place across all of the OECD today. They are trying to accelerate and mainstream their, uh, their actual implementation by setting concrete targets. So now we're not just saying we need to increase our resilience, we're saying this is the number of people we need to save by 2050, sure. by 2050 from sea level rise. Catherine, you're, so you're talking there about taking. adaptation plans, right, in terms of dealing mm -hmm. with the impacts of climate change. Dorothy, given that now that we're seeing so much impact on the global north, are you sensing a greater sense of urgency in terms of dealing with climate challenges? And I'm not just talking about adaptation here, but mitigation, so trying to reduce emissions or, or other sectors of, of climate action. Yes. Um, first, I say that we now are on, we have lost a decade or two in action and adaptation. And now that people are seeing and experiencing directly the impacts of climate change, which has been uh, experienced by people in the global south or the global majority far longer than what we are experiencing here in here in the north, there is a change of attitude. But then at the same time, we need to uh, increase that understanding that when we see floods on TV, we also have to think of our our uh, climate footprints and then also for policymakers and governments they need to prepare for events beyond current records particularly mm. with trends caused by anthropogenic climate change enhancing the probability of extremes so now planning should be made on the extremes and when you also mentioned about how the global north and south can cooperate on this there must be solidarity there must be there must be also that's why we are doing the the campaigning here in the uk for our government to put more uh, climate finance on the table to to do more than than usual and not to backtrack on commitments i think that is very very important because even if on the household level we understand that we need to segregate our waste or we need to uh, cut on electricity use or decrease electricity use, sure. that will not be enough because what is important is for the huge and historic emitters to cut emissions, for corporations to stop profiting um, on the on the shoulders of people from the south and also uh, on uh, with impacts on climate. So I think those are the important understanding that we need to come into. Dorothy, and I you were just, you're just talking there about planning for extremes, right? And Catherine, you mentioned there that, that time could be running out. John, I, I want to ask you a question around global climate dynamics that we're seeing. We obviously know they're hugely interdependent. You were talking about the sea ice and ocean warming, for instance. We know that one climate impact will have an impact on another, creating a, a sort of vicious cycle, so to speak. When we've talked about tipping points in the past, so a point at which we get into a space that is irreversible, people have often dismissed that as, as being overdramatic. How close are we to a tipping point now, John? Uh, look, uh, what I'm happy to talk about are cascading and compounding events. I'm not as confident about understanding and being able to tell that story about uh, tipping points. Um, if you want to go to a Venus planet, that's quite a different uh, story because that's helping people give up. Um, I think what we need to concentrate on are the probable futures that we can mm -hmm. envisage within a decade or two. And what I can tell you at this point in time is that we are seeing the boreal forests of the Northern Hemisphere burn at a rate that is unprecedented. And that will cascade into more heat and more 
damaging smoke events that will lead to bad health outcomes. We can we should tell these stories that are more immediate, mm -hmm. that should get a response because they have immediate consequences that we can stop. And if we address those, they will work on reversing those climate repair, you know, putting in place climate repair that will pull back on CO2, pull back on methane. We have to stop the boreal forests from burning um, because um, as they spike, they are putting out much more CO2 um, and much more um, volatile compounds that once they mix with the normal atmospheric process, we end up with tropospheric ozone, which is toxic to, to people. Um, so John... we know we have these immediate demands that we need to address. And if we address those, we're addressing the forcings that can push us towards those tipping points. John, you spoke there about this notion of climate repair, which is really this idea that there are steps that we can take to try to reverse some of, of what we've done so far. Now, obviously, that would require a huge amount of resources, but not only that, a huge amount of political will. And I want to talk a little bit about political will here. We're heading towards COP28, the 28th conference of the parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. That's nearly three decades of talking, and we're now living through the outcome of those three decades, well, nearly three decades of talks. That huge landmark Paris agreement in 2015, a lot of people said that was only really possible because we saw a bilateral agreement between the two largest emitters in the world, China and the US, the year before. We know in the last few days that the special climate envoy from the US, John Kerry, has been in China having discussions there. Catherine, let me throw this one to you. What did you make of the tone of those discussions, especially as we head now towards another conference of the parties in Dubai? Well, at least what we can see is that they want to set their other rifts, economic rifts, trade, uh, collaboration rifts aside and focus on climate and get uh, get sort of their minds together and negotiate what they can what they can both put to the table at the COP uh, and hopefully that yields uh, an outcome. But what we all know, it's not about another negotiation. We all know that it's about action. We, we the, the, the Paris Agreement is in force and all countries uh, that we talk about in the OECD space are lagging behind their targets so i think it's about implementing their commitments and implementing or reaching their targets uh, to to net zero so it's of course it's up to the two of them but it's also a commitment that all countries are falling short of as as we speak today uh, dorothy I, I want to ask you a little bit more about the the china dynamic there because there is some hope that that things might shift as we go forward. And obviously, China's also living through a huge heat wave in the north and, and experiencing extreme weather, flooding, and, and a huge amount of storms in the south. At the same time, though, China has doubled down on coal. And even these heat waves have actually well, basically ended up using more coal because of air conditioning. And I know that the energy infrastructure in China is really designed to be dependent on coal. Now, at the same time, Almost paradoxically, China has also been hugely scaling up renewables. And we know that renewables have become a lot cheaper, a lot more widespread around the world, but that's not necessarily been because of the reasons you've been pushing for, Dorothy, but because it's, it makes more financial sense. So let me ask you then, does this give you hope that things might be changing, perhaps not for the reasons that, that you'd been pushing for, but that they are changing? Well, it is good that 
key countries like the US and China are discussing because they do need to cooperate and, and they do need to show climate leadership. But we have to understand as well that that countries like the US, UK, countries in Europe are historic emitters. Although China is now a huge emitter, it is not a historic emitter. And uh, it's good that you have also mentioned that compared to all the rest of the Western or Northern countries, uh, China's use of renewable now uh, far outstrip everyone every, everyone else. It is using renewable more than all the other countries. And, it, and also because of its role in producing solar panels, the, the, those, the prices in the developing countries also reduce because of that role. So I think China play an important role. And one thing about China that we should also understand it is that when it puts a plan, it plan long-term because I've been following China since 2005, actually. I have read in their medium-term development plan, this is a five-year uh, program. When they plan, they put 25 years or 10 years and when they do that, they normally deliver because there is a consistency in the government. Unlike in the U.S., although Biden now put the U.S. back on climate leadership, but then he has a problem convincing the, the Congress to, to also follow his commitment. So there is that big difference. And, and also, many of the Western countries rely on business to do whatever they want to do. So in, in these cases, a just transition needs also a bit of planning from the government and also ownership of those crucial energy sectors, because you can't regulate anything that you don't own. So there needs to be a bigger role for governments in this kind of, of, uh, of steps and measures. And oh. uh, I'm not surprised when John Kerry also mentioned that they will not pay compensation or, or reparations to the Global South. That has always been the U.S. line and U.S. position, which is actually uh, not commensurate to their historic role. And, and unfortunately, that's that has always been their line. So with, with, with loss and damage, that happened in in Egypt because of the unity of the Southern governments. For so long, the history of the COP is a history of backtracking, of delay, of, mm -hmm. of uh, denying for responsibility and obligations of the Northern countries. So I think it is time now that they deliver. It is time now that for, for big fossil fuel companies also there to pay huge. for those Huge questions they of, can, of equity they here. Them, they can finance I do want, uh, obligation. Well, I, I'm sorry, Dorothy. I, I do want to throw a, a last question here to John because within the political landscape that we currently live in, and seeing what we're seeing now in terms of the extreme weather around the world, there has been increasing talk of geoengineering. This idea of trying to reduce some of the impacts of of what we've done to our planet. So, for instance, flying planes up and shooting vapor into the sky to block out some of the sun, ideas like that. Now, for a long time, a lot of that was discussed almost as, as science fiction. But I see that both the White House and the EU are actually now taking it very seriously. They've made formal statements about it just over the last few weeks or so. John, what is your take on that? Uh, do you think that it's, it's a legitimate, interesting idea? Are there other questions of equity Within that, is this a last resort? Have we come to that? Uh, it's an extraordinarily dangerous idea, only because, well, partly because we're experimenting with our home, and, of course, we're already experimenting with our home by emitting so much CO2 when we know that it's bad for us. And there's actually quite a simple answer. We stop emitting CO2. Hmm. Um, it's yet another experiment if we go ahead with doing that, and it's 
very divisive in the atmospheric, well, not in the atmospheric sciences, they regard it to be a poor man's choice. Um, it, it's, it's an engineer's choice, uh, and we've had engineers pumping CO2 into the atmosphere for a fair length of time, I think. The, 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 it is another experiment, and, and, and it, yes, you could hypothesise that it might be a solution, but I don't know if I want to do that with my home. Um, the, the, other, the other aspect to that is that people talk about this and it starts to get to look like greenwashing, and it can delay the obvious actions that we can put in mm -hmm. place right now, as if to say we've got we're going to buy ourselves more time. And to be honest, that's a fallacy. Even if we could put tens of thousands of aircraft into the air, lifting that much uh, dust into the air mm -hmm. to make a difference, that's a huge enterprise. We don't have that sort of infrastructure to lift that much into that layer of and, the atmosphere to make a difference. And John, you as you say... You would have to choose which part of the globe to do it to. Indeed. And as you say, we're already living through the impacts of our previous experiments on this planet. I'm afraid we'll have to leave it there for today. But thank you to all of our guests, Catherine Gampert, John Nairn and Dorothy Guerrero. This episode was produced by Mohamed El Aishi, Katya Lopez-Hodoyan, Abla Kla, and Jimmy Gettorn. Studio sound by Yasser Romani, and this program was also edited by Manish Matai, Khaled Sultan, and Joe DeFrias. Do be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every one of our episodes. Thanks for listening, and tune in again on Friday for our next one. This week on The Take, will Spain's upcoming election result in a setback for progressive policies? That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.